0: Good morning. My name is Brent. I'm the youth pastor here, and I'll be sharing a sermon with you. We're in a sermon series called Safe and Holy. Please follow along in your Bible, or you can use the screens. I'll be reading John 8, 1 through 11 from the New International Version. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid growing up, uh, my sister and I, my older sister, didn't always get along. Uh, I know that's hard for you guys to imagine, but sometimes siblings do not get along. We were both brought up in a Christian home with Christian values. But when it came to how we practice these Christian values, um, we just had a little different way of going about it. And I, of course, thought my way was the right way. In elementary school, I remember we were, um, my sister and I were at home and we had a babysitter watching us. And it came time to eat dinner and uh, I think the babysitter maybe was a little lazy or something, but she was like, let's have cereal for dinner. And uh, <laughs> which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? But one of my parents' weird rules was you can only have cereal for breakfast. And uh, so I interpreted that as like a rule that's set in stone. I interpret it as one of the natural laws of this universe. You cannot have breakfast for dinner. Uh, so I... I freaked out. I like, looked at the babysitter and I said, we cannot do this. Cereal is only for breakfast. We cannot eat cereal. I won't eat cereal. In fact, I'm going to have a piece of toast. Which, if you think about it, is breakfast too. But anyways. Um, so there I sat eating my toast. And my older sister, she thought it was harmless. She didn't really think the rule was that big of a deal. So she had cereal with the babysitter. I was like, what a rule breaker. She is going to get it. I was infuriated with my sister. I can't believe that she was breaking the rules. So the second my parents came home, I tattletaled. I went up and with righteous indignation told my parents my sister's sin. And uh, they really didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, I have a lot of stories where this came from. My sister, she was able to listen to pop music in like middle school that had a few questionable lyrics and themes and not have it compromise her values. I, on the other hand, could not stand it. I remember getting into arguments with her um, over these songs and I would say, look, this says a bad word or, it ha- or this has a wrong lyric. And, uh, and then she would say yes, but I choose to tune them out because I can see that if you look at what's happening here, this artist is actually struggling with truth here or, or what about this? And I said, nope, one bad thing contaminates the whole song. And uh, I I really could not believe her audacity to listen to pop music. So it's something that I ridiculed her for and I talked uh, bad about her uh, to my parents about it. My sister, she was able to uh, hang out with friends in high school who drank occasionally, even though she didn't. She kept her integrity, but she was still friends with people with differing views. And I honestly remember thinking this was bad. It was bad because she was associating with those people. Somewhere along the line, somehow I learned in church that you shouldn't have friends who do bad things. And therefore, I thought hanging out with people who sin makes you a sinner. There were many things that my sister was able to tolerate that my legalistic faith could not handle. I had so many things that would set me off. Whether it was the music she listened to, the friends she hung out with, or even something as trivial as how she spent her vacation time. During vacations she liked to sleep in, and then she liked to take things easy, because to her, vacationing was about relaxing. To me, I thought vacationing was about seeing as many things as humanly possible. So I would wake up early, I'd have my list, and I'd like go make sure we did stuff. And I remember getting so mad at her because I just I felt, again, like she was breaking one of these natural laws of the universe. She's doing vacationing wrong. Um, I didn't re- just relate this way to my sister. I did this to others, including strangers as well. There was one time in high school I remember well. I was in the band room. It was lunch. I was eating my lunch. And uh, I looked out the window, and I saw two people smoking cigarettes, uh, two high schoolers. And some, I, I felt this holy compulsion that I had to let them know they were sinning. So I, uh, yeah, I did this. I walked out of the room outside. I looked at them in the eyes and I said, You know, smoking's bad. It gives you cancer and it will kill you. And you don't look cool, you look stupid. And then I turned around and walked back. They felt my wrath. <laughs> So why did I do this? Why did I feel this irresistible compulsion to tell people they were wrong? And why did I do it in hurtful ways? When somebody did something that I somehow deemed was wrong, it drove me crazy. Because to me, it felt like they were going against the truth. To me, this truth was self-evident. Every situation was black and white. And when someone went against what I dream- what I deemed the truth of the situation was, I saw it as a sin because how could they not realize they were in error after all, if it was so obvious to me? When I felt like someone was doing something wrong, and they were going unpunished, I would feel this holy compulsion, like it was up to me to set things straight. And then I would do anything in order to get this point across. I remember telling my sister to her face she was wrong. I remember arguing with her. But that didn't really work. So then I did things more manipulative and more hurtful, like purposely talking bad about her to my parents when I knew she was listening and she was in the background just to slight her, just to ridicule her. Uh, I never really thought that I was wrong until one day my mom stopped me in mid-sentence with tears in her eyes and asked me if I knew that I was hurting my sister. I was like, what? What? I, I'm not hurting her because she doesn't, you know, she just disagrees with me. And my mom said, no, you are hurting your sister. She comes to me in tears talking about how you made her feel like she was demonized and she's doing these terrible things. And it really hurts her. And she just wants to feel loved by you, Brent. I was, I was floored. I couldn't believe that this was the situation. I, somehow, before my mom confronted me, I did not realize how self-righteous I was. So thinking back, trying to uh, reflect on my life, thinking, why was I this self-righteous? I think part of it is that I never stopped to think of my own sins and faults. I had this holy quest for truth because I was told in church that society was degrading on, on a slippery slope. And I thought... That telling on my sister, arguing with her, talking bad about her behind her back, when I knew she was listening, were all necessary tools to accomplish my goals. I thought telling those smokers in high school that they were stupid was a good thing because someone had to do it. And in our pluralistic society, after all, who's going to tell them? So I did. I realize now that at times I was not a safe person to be around. I was... Or I thought I was too holy and filled with self-righteousness to see the good in people. I picked out what I thought was wrong with them and made sure they knew it. Now, I knew grace was important, and I believed in grace, but I thought first the truth has to be told so they know what the truth is. That's the first thing that happens. What I needed in church was to hear the full gospel of Jesus Christ. I needed to hear that Jesus was both safe and holy. As I said before, our church is in a series called Safe and Holy. The point of the series is that Jesus was both a safe and a holy person, and he calls the church to be likewise. Churches can sometimes either be too holy and focus on pounding the truth into people's heads, erring on the side of becoming legalistic, or churches can be too safe. They can be merely a social club where people come to hang out and have camaraderie, but they never really hear the truth. They're never convicted and converted in their hearts. Jesus, he was able to make sinners feel like he was a safe person to be around. He gave them grace, yet when people left Jesus' presence, they were truly changed as a result of the truth that they encountered. A passage that describes this dual nature of Christ well is John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was able to extend grace without compromising truth, and he was truthful without compromising grace. And this is what made him both safe and holy. Our passage today is about a group of people who erred on the side of truth and holiness so much so that they were blinded from seeing the one who is actually the way, the truth, and the light in their midst. The Pharisees were one of three main sects within Judaism. And there were many markers of being a Jew in Jesus' day. Jews sacrificed in the temple. They believed in the one God, the God of Abraham, of Jacob, and Moses. And Jews obeyed the Mosaic law. But the Pharisees, they were known first and foremost for their devotion to the law. The Mosaic law was given by God in order to protect the Israelites and draw them close to him. There was over 600 laws. There were a lot of rules to follow. And by following these laws, the Jews were able to set them apart from others as God's people so that they would not lose their identity, so they would know whose and whose they are. Also, the law helped them to be obedient to God's will and to be in a relationship with him. By following the law, the Jews were supposed to be an example. They were to be a light on the hill that illuminates the darkness. And this example was to bear witness to God and help Gentiles come to know God. However, by the time Jesus was on this scene, many of the Pharisees had lost sight of the spirit of the law. They lost sight that the law was to be a witness to others and draw them into relationship with God, not to alienate them from God. At the time of Jesus, Rome ruled over Israel, and with Roman rule, came outsiders in Greek thought. Now, Greek thought is called Hellenism. And Hellenism, or Greek thought, values a pluralistic society. So the Pharisees found themselves trapped. There's these foreign invaders bringing their pluralism in, and they were living in a world where they saw that society was on a slippery slope towards hell they were rightly so felt threatened. There were Gentiles, there were tax collectors, prostitutes, and all sorts of sinners that threatened the Pharisees' sense of holiness and truth. They were wondering, who's proclaiming truth anymore? Because the Pharisees felt threatened, they felt they had to defend God's truth. And they did this in many ways. They took it upon themselves to pray lengthy prayers in the streets and make others feel like they weren't being holy enough. They made examples of sinners publicly so that people would know not what, what not to do. Most importantly, the Pharisees made sure not to be in association with the sinners. For to them, to hang out with the sinners was akin to condoning the sin and saying they approved of what they did. So they avoided being contaminated by the sinners so as to show their disapproval and hopefully be some of the last holdouts boldly proclaiming God's truth in a godless society. Now, what's interesting is that in the Mosaic Law, it also calls us, it also calls the Pharisees to be caring for the outcasts and the downtrodden and to show mercy. But I think in the midst of the pluralistic society, where they really did feel threatened, that maybe, maybe it was even subconscious, they felt they needed to err on the side of truth and holiness so that people would know the truth. Now, the Pharisees were a popular group with a large following. Many Jews sided with the Pharisees and the way they viewed the world. Many thought that strict observance of the law was the way the world would know God. There was one man, however, which seriously put a wrench in their program, and this person was Jesus Christ. Jesus had a bad reputation among the Pharisees. He was the rabbi who ate and even drank with sinners. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He was loose loose with his observance of the Sabbath and, in their opinions, with Mosaic law. Whenever they saw Jesus hanging out with sinners, they saw a rabbi condoning sin and not nearly worried enough about proclaiming the truth. And one of the most frightening things about this Jesus character was his command of authority Because Jesus was full of grace and truth, a wide spectrum of people flocked to him. They couldn't wait to see him because all their friends were telling them about this rabbi. He was a favorite of the masses and he had an undeniable movement going. So the Pharisees sought to do what needed to be done in order to stop this mad rabbi. They tried again and again to trap him and make him lose credit among the masses, but somehow it never seemed to work. He was always one step ahead of them. One particular day, they decided to set a trap with an adulterous woman. When Jesus is busy teaching people in the temple courts, the Pharisees bring him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. Here again is our scripture, John eight. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say?" They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stoops down and he writes on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. The Pharisees in this story, their main reason for bringing the woman before Jesus isn't actually her sin in this case. No doubt they were appalled by her sin and found it worthy of punishment as they often did. But their focus here is on trapping Jesus. If Jesus says she should not be punished, then they prove to the crowd that Jesus does not care about the law. However, if Jesus says stone her, then he is just like one of them and his specialness is gone. The crowds will know the tales of grace they heard are false and he will lose his appeal. However, Jesus doesn't say that she should be let go or stoned. He calmly sits down, and he just starts writing in the sand. At this point, the Pharisees thought they had the winning hand. The woman, she was terrified, and if she didn't know who Jesus was yet, then she might think that Jesus would agree with the Pharisees, and she would soon be dead. However, with one sentence, Jesus takes what the Pharisees, the crowd, and the woman is all expecting. He takes their worldview of reality, and he unveils a much deeper layer of reality. Jesus does this thing again and again in the Gospels where the Pharisees think they've trapped Jesus finally and no one in the crowd knows what's going to happen next and then suddenly he elevates the conversation to a whole new realm. My mother-in-law has a saying where she says, take it to the 37,000 foot level. Does anyone know what's important about 37,000 feet? By any chance? No? Okay. Um, This is the cruising altitude of a passenger aircraft. Um, And what what this means is when you take something to the 37,000-foot level, you're taking things to a whole new perspective. Think of the last time that you were a passenger in a jet. Think of how the scenery looked outside the window, if you were at the window seat, uh, before the plane took off, and then as it was taking off, and how quickly the scenery completely changes. I remember I used to live in Chicago for many years. And whenever I flew home for the holidays, I would drive on Lakeshore Drive. Lakeshore Drive is this uh, pretty cool highway in Chicago, and it goes right through downtown. And so as you're going on this highway, you're surrounded by uh, these skyscrapers that are over 100 feet tall. And a lot of them, it's a lot of bigger than Seattle, I mean, there's, you pass maybe a hundred skyscrapers, and you're just passing all these huge buildings, um, and they dominate your view. You actually would have to kind of like lean forward and look up, which is dangerous because you're driving and you shouldn't be doing that, but you often do it anyways. And and you see these tall buildings, and you're just amazed um, by how much they dominate your view, by the important things that are going on, the important people working there. And then, you go to the airport, you get in the plane, and you take off, and soon, those things that used to dominate your view, they look like a little toy model set. And you almost kind of laugh at, at the, um, the huge difference in perspective. And this is God's perspective, really. Maybe that's why they call it the God's eye view. Because he just sees things on a whole different reality. The things that dominate our view, that we're so concerned about, to Jesus, probably just look like a model toy set. With this famous line, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, Jesus takes it to this 37,000 foot level. Suddenly the game has changed. And what the Pharisees thought was the most important thing was put into perspective. Jesus shows the Pharisees that erring on the side of truth is impossible. Because when a person withholds a grace or even lets grace take a backseat, seat, then they end up focusing on others instead of the state of their own hearts. The focus becomes the outside. A fear of society and a fear of others. And being overcritical of others makes a person deal in partial truths. They're only focusing at times on others' sin. And the whole truth, the whole truth, God's perspective, is that all have sinned. All have equally fallen short of the glory of God and are in desperate, desperate need. For Jesus Christ's grace. And anything short of this realization is utter falsehood. By deciding to err on the side of holiness, the Pharisees blinded themselves. They focused on outward sins and they forgot inward sins. They focused on other sins and forgot about their own sins. In Jesus' word, they had a plank in their own eye. Yet, instead of seeing that plank, they were focusing on their brother's eye. This plank blinded them from seeing the Messiah. They couldn't see that he was full of grace and truth and that he was safe and holy. They weren't able to see the fruits of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was surrounded by disciples who previously led all sorts of different lives. Peter was very fickle. Uh, he was, he, there was uh, former prostitutes and tax collectors, people who uh, money laundered. There's all sorts of people. And these disciples really were living changed lives. The fruit was evident for all to see if they would just open their eyes. These people came to Jesus. He offered them grace and acceptance first before doing anything else. And there was real change in their lives. No, the the Pharisees couldn't see the fruit of Jesus' ministry because all they could see was that he was a rule breaker and needed to be stopped. However, In this passage, Jesus puts things in perspective and he exposes their sin. So that the Pharisees leave one by one, Jesus has taken the wind out of their sails and exposed their hypocrisy. And finally, no one is left. Jesus has shown everyone that sin should be not fought with stones. Sin shouldn't be fought with harsh words, anger, or Bible thumping. Rather, sin is to be dealt with and only by grace. By changing people's perspectives, everyone is given a chance to receive God's grace in this situation. The obstacles in our life fade away through grace. The Pharisees, they are humbled, they were put in touch with the reality of their own sin. And the woman who before possibly felt too dirty and too stained to live a righteous life, she's now been forgiven. She's put on the same playing field with the Pharisees and suddenly she has this new realization that she can live differently. This is the power of grace. Grace reveals our nature and it reveals God's nature. Grace reveals our blindness and our faults, but more importantly, God's answer to the human problem. God shows us he is here to rescue us from our lives of sin and to remove our obstacles. God is here to take the plank out of our eye. Jesus rescues us from the barriers we set up in society, and he rescues us from our black and white perspectives on life. He takes us to the 37,000 foot level and reveals his truth to us. He forgives us, and this sets us free. The woman who no doubt moments ago was afraid for her life is now shown grace. She encountered a rabbi who gave her grace first before correcting her, someone who was safe. And Jesus trusted that this powerful act of grace and acceptance was enough to change her. So he sends her on her way, commanding her to go and sin no more. Jesus does this time and time again throughout his ministry, where others respond to sin with stones because they feel threatened. Jesus responds to sin with grace and acceptance. And people's lives were changed. He was redeeming them and setting them free. So as a youth, many times I realized now I was like a Pharisee. I thought it was up to me to defend truth, and I thought all that I knew all the answers. I was blinded by the plank in my own eye. I thought I knew what truth was, but really, I was a hypocrite. The defining moment for me was when my mom told me with tears in her eyes how I was hurting my sister. And for the first time, I knew what self-righteousness was, and I saw it in myself. As much as this realization stung and it hurt me to realize how much I hurt my sister, this revelation reoriented my worldview It helped me to defocus others like my sister and focus more on the state of my own heart. That the sin, the evil in the world, it's less about everyone else, but I have to first come before God and say, God, I am a sinner. Forgive me. By focusing on the state of my own heart, it helped me to realize that my truths were empty and hollow if I did not have grace. Having a greater realization of my fallenness, what this did for me is it gave me a greater appreciation for what Jesus is doing on the cross. It gave me a hunger and a thirst to not be right all the time, but rather to admit my wrongs and accept the grace of Jesus Christ. So my question for us is in what ways are we like Pharisees today? What are the stones that we throw at others in the name of defending God? What are the stones we throw at others in the name of standing up for the gospel and standing up for God? How can we as a church be safe and holy like Jesus? How can we show acceptance and love to a wide spectrum of people with a wide spectrum of beliefs and believe in the power of this grace to change and to convert? How can we show them love while still being f- full of truth? Now this is a hard question, it's a hard balance, and that's what we've been talking about for weeks and we'll continue talking about because none of us have it figured out. Jesus was the only one who was full of grace and truth. Everyone before and after usually errs to one side. And this is our task as Christians. How how can we like Jesus be full of grace and truth? Can we trust that grace is as powerful as Jesus said it was? Can we trust that through grace and love the truth will be revealed in time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming down to this earth and walking amongst us. Thank you for opening the eyes of the blind and setting us free from our delusions of righteousness. Thank you for breaking down social barriers and revealing that your ways are higher than our ways and your truth is greater than our truth. Thank you for rebuking, correcting, and loving us. Thank you for forgiving us and giving us a grace that we do not deserve. Thank you for this power. Thank you for the power of grace, the power that grace has to level the playing field, to show us that not one of us is righteous, And we are in desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.